Welcome to the audio-only version of this week's pop-up submission show. I hope you enjoy it. We love you to join us for the live show on YouTube every Sunday at 5pm UK time. YouTube.com slash Litopia. Let me introduce you to our first guest today. He is the CEO of leading British publisher, Head of Zeus. Well, it's a very warm welcome back to Nicholas Cheatham. And he's known as one half of our new podcast, Short Story Hunters, well known to and revered by all Litopians. It's John Duffy indeed. Litopians, report to the Genius Room right now. Genius.litopia.com. Yes, and as um, somebody in the Genius Room did ask last week, do we have to wear that sort of very strange sort of crypto uh, BDSM stuff? Yes. You definitely do. Um, at the heart of pop-up submissions, of course, is the Genius Room. You get instant live feedback from um, amazing people. And this is how it's looking so far this month. In third place so far, it's Fanula with her MG tale of Dreamworld. In second place is Martin from Peoria, which I learned, thank you very much, Martin, is actually the home of American sci-fi. But in first place at the moment, with an impressive 71%, is Matthew, with a picture book for children in hospital. And it's doing very well as well as self-published, but I think, I think uh, Matthew would like to take it a little bit further than that. Now, we're going to go straight to our first submission, but before we do, an incredibly important announcement. With over 100 worldwide number one bestsellers, Head of Zeus is a formidable British-based publishing powerhouse. Independent Publisher of the Year, Digital Business of the Year, the awards and tributes keep rolling in. Now, Pop-Up Submissions has partnered with Head of Zeus to find tomorrow's best-selling authors. Each month's Pop-Up winner will be fast-tracked straight to them for their expert consideration. We know writing is never easy, but now Pop-Up Submissions makes it easier for you and your work to find a great publishing home. Yeah, isn't that exciting? I'm terribly excited about that. More about that in a few moments, but uh, the order of the day is the first submission. And this is what it is. It's from Patrick. It's science fiction, there's a QR code there. Click it, or uh, well, scan it rather, and you will find out where Patrick wants you to go to. And it's called Conrad Junction. And this is Patrick's blurb. All the digital devices in the world stop working. No one knows why. Fifty years later, civilization still exists, but with different national boundaries. Young Oli Dietrich in the community of Conrad Junction in North America discovers a document that might shed light on what caused the blackout. But the junction is tearing itself apart over the politics of the post-blackout world. Oli must convince his community to band together and learn the secrets of this strange new world. I'm interested. Let me tell you about Patrick. I was born in Michigan, grew up in California, and got my education in New York. How very bicoastal of you. Uh, I enjoy cooking, gaming, and watching hockey. My favourite authors are Ursula Le Guin, Robert Graves, Cormac McCarthy, Michael Moorcock, and Orson Scott Card. My favourite colour is green. I'm not sure what that's supposed to mean. <laughs> I think it might have sort of secret Masonic significance, like a handshake or something. I don't know. But anyway, um, I think very soon, uh, in the space of like three or four minutes, your favourite narrator is almost definitely going to be Barbara. Conrad Junction by Patrick Niemeyer, read by Barbara. Ollie felt as if something were jabbing him in the back of the head. It was far too easy to just lie here and look at the ceiling, but sometimes that was all he could do. The voice in the back of his head told him that if he didn't get up and do something, he was worthless. He was learning to fight it. The hardest part of the day was always getting home from work. 
Somehow, the freedom of realising that he could do anything he wanted made him feel as if whatever he chose to do could never be enough. Tonight, he was weighing several options. Eventually, one stood out to him. He rolled off his bed, knelt next to it and pulled a puzzle out from under it. This one was of Edwin's forge. He bought it months ago at the bazaar, but was only getting to it now. His room was starting to fill up with books he intended to read and puzzles he intended to solve. Since he moved out of his parents' house, he could feel something in his chest unknotting itself, as if part of him that had long lain dormant were awakening. When he lived with them, he found himself struggling to find anything to look forward to. Now he found himself getting almost giddy over something as simple as eggs and toast for breakfast. They tasted better than ever before. What had changed was neither him nor the eggs, but something in between. Ollie cleared some space on his desk and sat down. He opened the box and spread the pieces out over the flat surface, looking for the border pieces first. When he was six or seven, his parents had taken him to the southern rim and he had seen the forge for himself. As his parents stood outside and watched the sunrise on the canyon, he snuck off to get a glimpse of it. It was smaller than expected, yet somehow big enough to fill his mind. Edwin worked long hours, sometimes long into the night, sometimes just a few hours in the middle of the day. He didn't mind people watching him as he worked, although people who stopped to watch usually got bored after a few minutes and went inside the shop to browse. Ollie did not get to see Edwin in action. The store was closed at that time of morning. After he'd been there a while, he returned to the edge of the canyon to find that his parents had been looking all over for him. Apparently, they were worried he'd fallen in. He had been working for a few minutes when somebody buzzed his room. Irritably, he stood up. It was probably his mother asking if he'd gotten her care packages, or his sister wondering why he wasn't returning her letters. No doubt his father was very worried about him as well, although he had a funny way of showing it. Yes, he said into the intercom, trying to keep the resignation out of his voice. Hello, said Maze, her voice almost a croak. Can I come in? He buzzed her in without another word. Maze was shuffling down the hall as he opened the door and dressed in sweatpants and a light jacket. Her lip was bleeding. Did he? Ollie began. She nodded, her eyes red. He stood aside to let her into the room. She entered and sat down on his bed, looking at the floor. Ollie sat at his desk and turned his chair to face her. Can I get you some ice? he asked. She nodded. He retrieved some ice from the communal fridge down the hall, wrapped it in a towel and returned to his room. She pressed it to her face. Her eyes were distant. She was still reliving what happened. My friend says I can move in with her, she said at last. That's good, said Ollie. You should have done this a long time ago. He realised how that sounded. I didn't mean... It's fine, she said. It's what she keeps telling me too. She looked around. Let's go straight to the genius room, see what they're saying. Um, Vicky's saying, is this YA? I don't know, actually. It's simply just modern science fiction, which, of course, is a huge, great genre with lots and lots of uh, sub-genres. Uh, Barbara likes the premise. Eva likes, likes the blurb, and that's from a non-sci-fi person. Vicky says, lots of some things. Annie says, like the prose, little more action, please. Vago One Heart agrees with that. And Cora, competent writing is not the beginning of a story for me. We need something to happen. Not so much introspection. So, uh science fiction aficionado is undoubtedly Nicholas. First reactions, please, Nick. Uh, well, I mean, I love the idea, you know, the idea, you know, that suddenly all those digital devices that we've come to rely on have stopped working. What, Sounds uh, rather nice, you know, actually. It happened to Nicopia, you know. Uh, yeah, exactly, uh, yeah. Um, and, and it is, you know, I, I, so I think that that's a, that's a really intriguing premise. Um, and I think, you know, that you could definitely hang a novel off that. You know, you've got the post, you know, digital um, world. Um, you're finding out what it is, a bit of detective story. So that's all very promising. And I think it was, you know, nicely put forward in the, um, in the blurb. You know, I, I, I got that, I got a good sense of it. But, you know, those first few pages, I mean, oh. I just thought were yeah. um, really sort of kind of, uh, unfortunately, sort of empty of, 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 yeah. of much interest. Um, yeah. I think someone used the word introspection. Yeah. Um, 
I would have started that if you wanted to start it, um, uh, perhaps with Maze coming into the room, you know, with the bleeding lip. Um, yeah. Start there, yeah. Yeah. on that, and yeah. basically take it from there. Yeah. Okay, let's just go back to the genius room for a moment. Alex uh, is saying twos across the board. As with so many other uh, opinions here, premise is great, prose technique is strong, but we need to get to the story or it's just things that are happening. That's so true. Just what uh, Nick was saying, really. Um, can you, um, Nicholas, please, um, click the vote button when you've decided what you're going to give? Got, you've got four different criteria to vote on. Um, Johnny, I remember... Uh, oh, you've already voted. That's right. I remember uh, reading when I was ever so young, actually, a story about machine stopping, and this kind of it, it stayed in my head for decades and decades and decades. And I just before the show today looked it up. It was actually written in 1909. Can you believe 1909 by E. M. Forster? And it was called The Machine Stops. I had no idea E. M. Forster even wrote any sci-fi. Didn't remember the author. Remember the premise. So it's not exactly a new idea. This thing of you know of the technology that supports us just winding down and stopping um your reactions please yeah i think it's uh, opportune to the times we live in because we're so def you know we're so device dependent aren't we you know we can't go we anywhere without our phones our pads yeah. our laptops and, and all our digital devices so in common with the others i felt um, a great premise as well but not a lot happened and, and i got a little bit confused really we had a little bit of yeah, so somebody stayed saying respection, but but even that we were sort of it was like three little short story strands which didn't really seem to to link up for me. And I also felt that when the the was uh, Mize and uh, I don't know how the name was pronounced turned up finally with some kind of a problem with you know a thick lip. There was some kind of in, um, inference that there'd been maybe she was living in a bad relationship or something like that. But um, from that point of view, that's when it probably started for me as well. Up until then, there wasn't really yeah. an awful lot to grab hold yeah. of. But the, the, prose, the, the, the prose flowed quite well, though. It was nicely written, but there was nothing really to, to grab me that, that strongly. Yeah. And, and the name, the name didn't do anything for me at all. Conrad Junction, I, I don't know if you know. I, I understand it's the time where it happens, but yeah. it doesn't really grab you by the throat and say what's happening. <laughs> I'm not sure if I'd remember it. That's the thing. I don't know if I'd remember it. Um, this mm. is all. This is all good stuff. Actually, we're getting uh, getting instant reactions in the chat room. Um, any more votes in the chat room? Bring them in now. Otherwise, we'll go straight on to submission number two. When you join our weekly huddle, certain things happen. No, not that. Bring your writing, your book titles, your blurbs, anything really, for expert and sympathetic input. In confidence. Other websites charge a fortune for this kind of thing. In Latopia, the oldest community for writers on the net is included in your modest subscription. Latopia, we're here for you. Yeah, and um, people are already admiring Nicholas's slightly longer hairstyle. I didn't notice that, but... It's clearly a hit there. This is submission number two. It's from Glennis. It's a memoir. Don't get too many memoirs. And it's called A Wandering Minstrel. Soprano, Glennis Groves. That would be Glennis, wouldn't it? Oh, Glennis, yes. Shares this descriptive, often hilarious, account of a long, busy and varied career, which has accomplished virtually all aspects of a singer's working life, concerts, theatre, radio and recordings from touring with the unique Kate Bush, to membership of the prestigious Royal Opera. Revealing all, this amusing, informative book charts her progress through the music business with laugh-out-loud anecdotes recounting the pleasures and pitfalls of life as a professional singer. I'm looking forward to a good laugh today, I can tell you. Uh, let me give you uh, Glennis's bio. Uh, 18, joined the Doily Card Opera Company, uh, then several West End musicals, subsequently worked as a freelance session singer on classical popular music recordings, radio, films, TV. Uh, was backing vocalist for Kate Bush on her Lionheart tour. Joined Royal Opera as a chorister, played many solo roles, including televised farewell performance of uh, Dame Joan Sutherland, together with Marilyn Home and Pavarotti. You must have some stories to tell. Uh, regularly appeared as a soloist in a wide variety of concerts, recitals, performed with and managed The Garden Party, a quartet undertaking concerts, cabaret and corporate entertainment. Having uh, have worked with luminaries of all sectors of the entertainment business and uh, at the most iconic of international venues, you've clearly achieved an awful lot 
in your career, Glennis, possibly about to be topped by your lifetime achievement, which is getting Martin to sing. A Wandering Minstrel by Glennis, read by Martin. Oh no! The panic rose in my throat and I swallowed hard. I felt my face flush and my heart began hammering so loud I almost expected my immediate neighbour to glance over in curiosity. We were all in the school hall, standing in neat rows, lustily singing the folk song Sweet Nightingale. Mr Roberts, headmaster of Oak Farm Junior School, having decided to form a school choir, was now embarking on the selection process. He worked his way methodically up and down the rows, pausing occasionally to listen to an individual piping voice. A gentle tap on the shoulder indicated a chosen candidate. I had just seen my best friend Janet receive the required acknowledgement, and Mr Roberts advanced towards me. As she sings in the valley below, hooray, my favourite bit of the song. I cranked up the volume, my shoulder tensing in anticipation of the expected tap. Suddenly, Mr Roberts paused, momentarily distracted by a pupil, perhaps fidgeting in the back row. He strode purposefully towards the miscreant as we continued to warble the, e the end of the chorus, as she sings in the valley below. Horrors! Returning to the task in hand, he started back beside the person behind me. He had missed me out. I was devastated, although that had nothing to do with the singing. I immediately realised that it meant Janet and I would not be sharing an activity. She would be going to choir practice and I would be excluded. We always did things together and I knew she would be as unhappy about the situation as I was. Desperate, my throat constricted, no further sound came out and tears began to well. What on earth was I to do? For the rest of the song my mind was racing. Could I pretend that I had been chosen? Could I persuade Janet that she hadn't been chosen? I had to have a plan. Think, Lennis, think. Eventually, the song finished. Mr Roberts gave brief instructions for the new choir members to present themselves at lunch break the following day. Although dismissed, I stood rooted to the spot. The sick feeling in my stomach prevented my legs from carrying me away from this awful place of hideous disappointment. Then, my mind made up, I slowly advanced towards Mr Roberts, who was gathering up the papers from the top of the grand piano. Eat your heart out, Oliver Twist. Please, sir. Mr Roberts turned and glanced at the stricken and by now tear-stained little face before him. I think you missed me out by mistake. He must surely have been quite bemused, but I guess he considered a willing volunteer was worth two conscripts. He probably saw Janet hovering anxiously at the doorway and put two and two together. But to my intense relief, he replied, Very well, you may join the choir if you wish. If I wish? Crisis over, Janet and I skipped down the school drive. We would be attending choir practices together. These proved most enjoyable. An Oak Farm Junior Choir thrived under Mr Roberts' enthusiastic leadership. Following a successful entry in the Uxbridge Musical Music Festival, choir aged 12 and under, choristers were encouraged to learn the set piece appropriate to their age and enter the solo singing classes. I still remember my song. It was called My Mouse. Don't be nervous. Sing to the clock at the back of the hall was the final encouragement at our last rehearsal. Advice totally wasted on me. Resulting from a recent incident involving my bicycle and the curb, I was the unhappy possessor of a pair of round, pink, wire-framed National Health spectacles. I was absolutely not wearing them to sing on stage. So, on the day, I couldn't even see the front row of chairs, let alone the clock at the back of the hall. In a total, but comfortable, blur, I began telling the story of my mouse. I vividly recall singing that song, an amazing experience, and I loved it. To my immense pleasure, the audience and the adjudicator also enjoyed my rendition. I was hooked. Then and there, age nine, I decided that I would become a singer. 
Okay, so uh, straight to the genius room. Um, I would say, uh, actually, Glennis, you're getting what I call a sympathetic reaction from the genius room. Um, uh, lots and lots of support again, with enormous amounts of support for the new Pavarotti, I think, and Martin. Um, let's go to our, our museo. Museo. Johnny, what did you think? would agree with a lot of the comments I've been reading as I come through, but for me, I think that um, Glennis's background and her blurb are very strong. And although she's given us a nicely rendered uh, opening scene here, I'd be inclined to sort of lead with a bigger, a bigger, a bigger kick, you know. Yeah. And maybe we should hear about Pavarotti ripping his trousers as he's going out yes. on the stand at you know the Royal Festival yes. Hall or something like that, exactly. or, or something that happened on Kate Bush's land hard tour. Because I'm a big Kate Bush fan, and as soon as I heard that, I thought, ah, oh, here we go, this is right up my street. Yeah, and I think. In, in many respects, it probably is. But I think the, the, the beginning is a bit tame. It's a little bit, you know, it's a little bit really quaint, very quaint little story. Nice, yeah. you can see how she got hooked into it. Uh, but it's not gripping. And, and, and more mm. importantly, for something which is kind of tight in itself as being hilarious, not a bit light on the laughs for me as well. Didn't laugh at all, actually. And, uh, yeah, no, and the, the blurb me, was big on the belly laugh, so I didn't do one, actually. Maybe yeah, that's I mean, if you were it in the blurb, that might be the problem, but perhaps maybe yeah. sort of dial the laughs, dial the, the laughs expectation back a bit. Uh, yeah. It was nicely written. It was, it, was, it, was, it was pleasant, but it didn't deliver on the blurb for me, I'm afraid. No, it didn't. Not for me. Um, so, Nick, this would fall into the general area of professional confessional. Uh, they've done quite well recently, haven't they? Yes, if you're a doctor. Um, if you're a doctor, right. <laughs> yeah, no, the doctor ones, uh, the doctor ones, uh, you can't yeah. stop selling them. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, it, it, it really needs a lot more bang. Um, mm. uh, uh, Aristotle's advice um, uh, two and a half centuries ago was to begin in the middle of things, not at the beginning. Um, uh, and mm. it's good advice that, that still holds true today. Yeah. Um, uh, I think that, you know, that the, the scenes were quite sweet. Um, mm. I think, you know, that you could have jumped straight back, you know, into, you know, the little girl um, uh, being passed over or, you know, the first, um, uh, you know, the first performance after yeah. a big bang of an anecdote um, uh, exactly. up front. I, I yeah. think that, that could have worked. You could have had some nice yeah. contrast um, with it. As it was, you know, we didn't get that. And I also found it a little bit odd is that we kind of had two childhood episodes kind of telescoped yeah. together. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, pick one or the other, but putting them both there doesn't make them any, any stronger. You've got points from Lex for quoting Aristotle. Um, uh, you're, you're very popular today, Nicholas. It's the hairstyle, it's the Aristotle. I mean, what's not to like here? Um, I, I, yeah, I can't. I, I mean, all I can do is echo, but in an even stronger way, what everyone has said already, that um, you've got his. Is Pavarotti alive still? No. He's definitely no. dead, is he? Good. All right. Well, there can be the most outrageous sexual antics with Pavarotti to begin with. Then, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I think that's, that's where we're going with this, Glenn. I mean, it is a professional confessional. He's got to hit his hard, really hard with the first scene. It's got to be something that's amazing and stunning and titillating. I think the thing about professional confessionals for me a lot is they're quite gossipy. You just, you know, you just, oh, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah. Ooh, ooh. You know, you've got to have that sort of lightness. It's not a sort of relentless walk through your whole life from childhood onwards. It's just, just the high points and, you know, take those a bit further than, than you normally would do, perhaps, when you're talking to, to friends. Um, we're going for a 44 all round, it looks like. Just seeing what's... Genius Room has been quite kind, I think, with the bang. I don't think it's got quite that same commercial material. Potentially it could do. It could do, but we, we need we just we just need more. We just need more. Let's do one more submission and then we're going to talk to to Nicholas. Here we go with submission number three. This is children's, it's ages four to nine. That's very young. That's kind of read out loud stuff, I think. Well at least at the four end probably. Uh, it's from Victoria. QR code there too. It's called Folio the Brave. And this is Victoria's blurb. Sometimes it takes the toys to remind the child not to grow up too fast. Folio the Brave is willing to risk everything, even getting lost in the unpredictable world of dreamland. My dreams are quite unpredictable, especially at the moment, COVID dreams. Um, Victoria's buyer, usually, she says, I'm a writer of novels and I've completed 36 of them. 
Wow. In this foray into children's literature, I was thinking of reading to my grandsons. Hmm. I'm pleased to say that Folio the Brave passed the test, for Remy, age seven, begged me to, quote, read it again, Grandma. Okay. So hopefully, by the time this narration is finished, we'll all be begging Ellie. <laughs> Dreadful link. To read it again. Folio the Brave by Victoria, read by Alison. Toy trains are colourblind. No, that's not quite true. What they are is colour bright, for they can only see primary colours with a few bold additions like pumpkin orange and grape purple. I was told this simple truth by Anatole, who's three years old and also a genius. We were lying, stomachs down and a little damp, on the grass of the backyard. The little train was a few inches in front of us. Folio was the name he'd been given. He was light blue, and his painted sides were faded of their original detail. Most of his face was still there, for despite his smile, it was a stubborn face. His huge, round nose was a magnet, and his bunny-tailed backside had a magnet of equal size and heaviness. I thought that's what made Folio special, a standout from all other fist-sized toy trains, that cold and weighty metal dot on either end. It didn't shout it was better than plastic, but it hinted. Folio was top-rate, which is why his left cheek spot had been rubbed off. Folio doesn't like grass, Anatole informed me, nor the inside of bathtubs. Mud? Oh yes, mud is fine. Trains prefer bathing in mud. A moment of silence fell on us, and we studied Folio, who couldn't lie down straight on his train wheels because the grass tickled his belly. Will you take Folio with you on your trip to see your grandpa? I asked. Anatole didn't give me a direct answer, but he did say planes are really colourblind because they can only see white, grey, and blue sky. This is when he told me Folio was Anatole's best train friend, who nobody else could see. Ah, I said, an imaginary friend, a rare but quality breed. Folio says imaginary people have more fun than others. He comes from an imaginary world. What does this world look like? Obviously, the trees are primary green, and the sky is primary blue. Folio knows green isn't a primary colour, but it's brave. I pointed out Folio must like going on adventures, being that he's a train and lives in an imaginary world. Anatole agreed. Folio did like those things. Then perhaps Folio will like going with you when you fly to see your grandpa. Anatole sat up, snatched Folio in his little boy fist and threw him hard. The train landed a few feet away. Although on his side I could still spy Folio's open eye. He was a stubborn locomotive, all right. Folio can't come. Imaginary worlds don't exist when a boy grows big. Imaginary worlds do exist. For how else could Folio chug-chug or toot? Anatole didn't feel like arguing. Instead, he cried like a three-year-old until his mother came out and spoke to him. He didn't feel reasonable either. Boys his age get tired, she said, even geniuses. Anatole went inside, for his hand was tugged that way. I stood in the backyard, listening. Anatole's bedroom window was on the main floor. His window was open in a two-inch crack. It was locked that way, so no burglar could get inside. He did his business in the bathroom, had a drink of water and climbed into his bed. But he must yell a lot about the injustices of the world and other outrages. It's the perfect time to make my report. I pressed the button on my wrist and shrunk down until the spiky grass surrounded me like jungle trees. The closest entrance had been dug by Anatole himself. A plastic man lay forgotten, a toy of long ago, who by virtue of the dirt hill covering his chest and one whole arm had avoided the blades of the lawnmower. His legs were scissored open, and his turned head hid his face. The toy didn't speak to me. Forgotten toys froze when no one played with them, especially the plastic ones. They disappeared into the land of happy remembering, remnants of the world they'd inhabited when a child's imagination brought them to life. Through this connection to imagination, I was able to make this toy my door. Frozen toys always left the doorway into Playland wide open. Okay, so 
a stubborn locomotive. I've often been described as such. Um, charming ideas, Kate. Writing needs more zap for the age. Now getting a sense of the eye, says Vicky. Uh, Vagabond, like the idea. Confused by who this is aimed at. I, I, yeah, me too. Um, language is a bit too much. I agree, Hannah. Language a bit too much towards the upper half of this age range and four. E.G. Logan says something. Vocabulary seems a bit advanced for the age group. Takes a bit long. Um, doesn't and chorus says the same doesn't seem right for the market age so far no story yeah nothing grabs me let's see let's see Johnny if that brings out your inner child um, there's something that was quite you know quite sweet and quite charming uh, I, I like the I actually like the title on this one particularly um, Folio the Brave was quite nice and I'd give a, a bonus mark for calling the kid Anatole because the only place I've ever seen that name is in Bertie Wooster yes. his aunt's chef the cook his French the cook. F. yes absolutely yeah. <laughs> I did feel there was a kind of a what some of the others have said as well for me there's a bit of a disconnect between you know the, the target age which is four to nine mm. and I think if anything this is this you know for kids of that age to get some of the vocabulary in it and understand some of the concepts it would have to be the higher age for me uh, you know Anatole is is he's meant to be three I think in it now his vocabulary is very very advanced for a three year old I suspect and I think maybe that needs a little bit of a little bit of tinkering about with um, from that point of view yeah. uh, only the, only only when it got to the end did I, I really perk up there was a fan there was a twist there at the end all of a sudden the adult. Uh, I should say at the start, first of all, there was a nice depiction of an adult and a child lying together, belly down in the grass, talking and chatting, and that was really nicely rendered. But only when the adult, if I've understood it correctly, shrinks to microscopic size, you, you begin to get the, the, the idea of, uh, here's a bit of a twist, here's a bit of a story. Um, so, yeah, it, I, I think it, it could it could work with work, if that doesn't make uh, too much gibberish. I didn't, uh, I didn't. I think it needs some work. I think, I think it needs a bit of uh, a change around and a bit of a weeding out here and there. Oh, yeah. No, I, I didn't get that bit at all, actually. Now you've... you've <laughs> says a lot of me. <laughs> I didn't actually get that shrinking down a bit. No, so, uh, uh, thanks for explaining well, 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 that, think, uh, Johnny. I, I, think, I think I've got it right. It could be what I'm drinking here. I'm not too sure. But I, I, I think, I think uh, we did have a sort of a borrowers type uh, kind of thing going on towards yeah, the end. Yeah. Yeah, I got... Um, not to grow up too fast um and then uh, i don't i don't think you can force children not to grow i mean there's so much so many pressures on kids these days to just just mm. bloody well grow up and become a consumer and then mm. um there's a scary bit actually for me it still scares me a bit it's a bit poignant a bit emotional about for what happens to forgotten toys the fate of forgotten toys that would drive me com to complete neurosis when i was a kid you know in case any of my toys got f I, i've forgotten i don't know um I'm not sure where to go with this at all. Can you give me some guidance, maybe, Nick? Yeah, I, I think that, I mean, the, the, the language is far too um, sophisticated mm -hmm. um, for the age group. I think mm -hmm. that the sort of uh, the, the slightly metaphysical tone that we're taking towards the end of um, end of it when we're trying to work out who our I narrator is who appears to actually be narrating quite a lot about what Anatole is doing I thought that uh. was uh, that, that kind of piqued my interest actually and, that, and that's what I found actually most interesting but I, uh. I thought, was wondering if it was perhaps a little bit confusing but the other thing is I don't ever think that any writer should ever write down for children I so, agree. Um, I'm so agree with that yeah. I think that I, I would give that a pass until I, I saw what was, what was happening in the rest of it. I mean, I, I thought I was disturbed by the land of happy remembering, which sounded anything but like the land of happy remembering. You know, it sounds like the most awful euphemism, the land of happy remembering. I'll stop the hell more life, you know. Um, <laughs> No, it could be just something Edwardian and a bit sort of, you know, um, um, Graham, what's his name? Wind in the Willows. It, I mean, it, it was a lot of mawkish, sinister. Sinister. Much more sinister. Um, kind oh, of like some weird Eastern European sort of animated <laughs> version of, um, of, you know, Alice in Wonderland or something. Well, um, that says a lot about you, of course. <laughs> <laughs> But there are, 
I mean, you know, there were some some phrases. I mean, like you know, he did his business in the bathroom or whatever. That just kind of made me feel a little bit. Um, um, I, yeah. I don't know. I mean, he could have had any business in the bathroom, but you know, my mind, you know, um, didn't want to be taken that way. Didn't need to go that way. Yeah. Um, uh, so um, well, we're, we're, yeah, making, I, I we're making victoria laugh she's on on youtube though we're making her laugh that's a good thing uh i want to ask you guys as well please um about the the title johnny likes it i think what do you think uh, nick yes um i'm pretty neutral on it um because uh, folio has a specific meaning in publishing oh, terms yeah. so it kind it of confuses does, me does, a bit yeah. actually yeah it also depends whether or not I mean his, uh, you know, you're you're a recto or a verso. That's the way you say it. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's something to do with that, that the Turkish all male oil wrestling I was watching last night. But I don't know. Just something about recto and verso. It just I don't know. It just makes me clench. Uh, <laughs> okay, so um, this is where we are. I think everyone's pushed their buttons so far. Um, and we're looking at a fairly solid 48 there, Victoria, but uh, final final thought from me. Um, I'm not quite sure where you're going with this. I mean, I know the thing is that kids love it when you read loud in any case, so they will they will sit still for quite a lot of good stuff, actually. And uh, commercially, it's, it's more difficult. It's just more difficult. And I think most agents and most publishers do get lots of submissions from people who, who say much, much the same thing and they say you know my kids love it my grandkids love it therefore it's publishable and the two things don't necessarily follow unfortunately but never mind um now what we should do next i think i think we should speak to nicholas shall we nicholas from head of zeus let's have a look at um head of zeus there you go what a lovely website it's beautiful yeah, thank you. it's it's yeah, live very good on your um on your uh preview oh, it, it did actually didn't it yes I, I I have totally. like yes <laughs> yeah well you'd have to have sort of anamorphic projection and stuff on <laughs> like going on like that um i want to ask you lots and lots of things actually and nick but first of all we did ask you to suggest a book today and i believe you have done that which one is it i have i have i have it right here okay oh look at that that's a book that is I'm a book with holographic uh, foil. Four. Nothing with the best. Wow. Oh, look at that. Yeah. How many um, words, roughly? It's huge, isn't it? It's a doorstopper. Yeah, so th this is pretty huge. I mean, this is sort of 200,000, it's 600 meters um, long. And it's it's the culmination of a, of a sort of a, a long-term project of ours, which has really been to, at Head of Zeus, become the home of international science fiction. Oh, wow. um, and by that, you know, sort of we mean writing science fiction or writing from all over the globe um and so in there i think we have um uh, 26 stories from 23 countries written in seven different languages wow. um uh, and <clears throat> as a long-term science fiction fan myself you know i i've always liked you know science fiction fans like reading new things like discovering yeah. new cultures new yeah. ideas yeah and, you know, if you just read the sort of English and American stuff, you know, it's, I mean, there's wonderful, yes. wonderful writing being done, but, yes. you know, yes. this is, you know, all from the point of view of our culture. And actually, it's really yeah. interesting to get out there and see yeah. what other people are writing and how other people That's are thinking. That's so true. How, I mean, I, I got excited when I read that because I haven't, I haven't read much science sci-fi for a long time, but, I, you know, there was a, was a time and I read everything I could get, actually. And it, as you say, it was, it was exactly that. It was English, English language, English people, Americans, writing in english and when i saw that the best of world science fiction has got contributions from so many countries i, I, I mean i have to say it's kind of embarrassing to admit but i had to say i didn't know they wrote sci-fi there um so yeah global what a great idea um one question to you about that what can sci-fi teach us now that we are sort of living in a bit of a dystopian world um is is the is there a purpose for sci-fi still well science fiction has never really been about the future it's never been about predicting the future um oh. uh, it's really just been a mirror being held back you know to, to to what we're currently living through and so you know it's actually a reflection of now and mm. not the future oh, okay. um and you know our most successful science fiction um book is um well it's, it's a trilogy um uh, by the chinese author liu shishin uh yeah. and it's called the three body problem 
Um, yes. And that's been picked up as a basically as a way, you know, uh, for um, it's been picked up by Barack Obama, Zuckerberg, you know, everyone's talking about it because they see oh. it as a way of looking at how China might actually consider the future. Now, of course, I read it just yeah. as an absolutely fantastic story that starts in the Cultural Revolution and ends at the end of the universe, um, you know, three volumes later. But, yeah. you know, it is it does come from a slightly different cultural place. I mean, yes. Western science fiction is very much about empires, you know, galactic empires, and it's about um, yeah. perhaps um, independent rebel alliance, you know, um, you know, plucky fighters, you know, um, taking out Death Stars, etc., etc., um, whereas actually, you know, what, you know, comes from the Chinese science fiction is a very different view um, of, the, uh, of, of, of the universe. And hmm. the fascinating thing about China is they, they have this empire, perhaps the history of the world, you know, for 2000 years, is pretty much concentrated in China. Yeah. And then they met a culture um, uh, which, you know, they, they couldn't compete with. Yeah. And so their sort of experience of... Uh, of perhaps if you want to say colonization and uh, yeah. exploring the world is oh, totally different from the, yeah. the western experience yeah wow and that has it that has an effect on the writing it sounds mind opening actually let's just have another look at the uh, there's a qr code there too if you've got your phone you can just scan that and you'll go straight to uh the head of zeus page now we also want to talk to you about some people we're rather proud of here on pop-up submissions we got mark there we've got tim there and we've got nabil as well who has just been published by uh penguin um but mark and tim are alumni we are very proud of and it looks like they're proud of us too uh judging by the quotes they've given are people who've been through the pop-up process and uh, survived the other side tell us about both books briefly if you don't mind nick well, I mean, um, we're, you know, just on the verge of, of, of publishing, Mark, you know, but we've, we've got a number of books, you know, under our belt um, from Tim. And mm. Tim's Viking series really has been going um, from strength to strength uh, Good. for us. And um, amazingly, um, he is getting something like uh, 100,000 streams on Spotify for the audio oh, that we've got wow. out uh, wow. his first book. Wow. And they're all from places like, uh, well, it's all in Germany and in uh, Canada as well. And so what we love about this is, you know, we're publishing these books here and obviously we distribute them throughout the world, but be able to discover audiences, you know, sort of in the yeah. middle of Europe or over the Atlantic, you know, who, yeah. who are desperate for this kind of thing is, 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 is incredibly interesting. Yeah, um, and you know we've just dropped two more books of his onto onto Spotify, so I'm really interested to see where he can go. I think he's probably one of the best-selling authors on Spotify at the moment. That's amazing. That's um, amazing. We're even more proud of him. So um, all those three, and actually several more, as I haven't mentioned it. We, we will be doing weeks ahead. Are alumni of the pop-up process, and you may wonder actually if you've been watching the past two or three weeks, and we've been moving on to a different sort of scoring system. You may wonder what what is this thing we've got about the month winner well i can reveal to you now this is exactly what it is because the monthly winner at the end of each month will go straight to to head of zeus for consideration you can consider them they can consider you and it's just one more route to publication we're very excited about it head of zeus have got a reputation i've always had right from the beginning as a pioneering publisher people are doing new things and that's pretty much what we're doing too yeah with over 100 worldwide number one bestsellers, Head of Zeus is a formidable British-based publishing powerhouse. Independent Publisher of the Year, Digital Business of the Year. The awards and tributes keep rolling in. Now, Pop-Up Submissions has partnered with Head of Zeus to find tomorrow's best-selling authors. Each month's pop-up winner will be fast-tracked straight to them for their expert consideration. We know writing is never easy, but now Pop-Up Submissions makes it easier for you and your work to find a great publishing home. Yes, indeed. Yes, so we confidently expect more hugely successful authors and books from through the pop-up submissions route let's have a look at the fourth submission of the day it's from terry 
and it's middle grade, which in my book is 8 to 13, but it's always slightly, uh, slightly movable feast that. It might be something else. Um, middle grade fiction. Santa Baby. There's a QR code there too. Terry's blurb is very short. Three bickering children secretly adopt Santa when he's turned into a baby. Now all they have to do is to hide him from their parents, change his nappy, defeat an evil witch, and save Christmas. Oh, that's what we're saving, isn't it? Tell you about Terry. Uh, for as long as I can remember, says Terry, I've wanted to be a writer. As a teenager, I wrote terrible pastiches of Conan the Barbarian and progressed to poor imitations of James Herbert and Tom Sharp. I had some success in the 80s and 90s writing comedy material, for British and German television shows. And one of my sketches features in the Hale and Pace compilation, The One, The Golden Rose of Montreux, in 1988. When my grandson was born, I tried my hand at children's fiction. One of my early attempts was Santa Baby, which started life as a 32-verse poem, which I have now adapted into a novel. My middle-grade novel, My Zombie Best Friend, it sounds like a winner, doesn't it, uh, was published in 2017. Last year, I won... That's Mo, actually, isn't it? Mo O'Hara, My Zombie Goldfish and all that stuff. Uh, last year, I won the Green Stories for Young Readers Writing Competition. Uh, prize-winning writer? You need a prize-winning narration. you like my links today. It's from Beverly. Santa Baby by Terry Lowell Read by Bev. Chapter One. I don't believe in Santa Claus. There, I've said it. Dad and Alice think I believe, but I know he's made up. And the Santa we're going to see is just a man with a Christmas job, a false beard and a cushion up his jumper. I haven't told Dad I know Santa's not real because he loves Christmas and he might get upset. Who wants to see Santa? He shouts in his aren't we all having fun voice. Emily and Ethan don't even look up from their phones. So he turns his broad grin on me. Are you excited, Noah? I try to pull a face that says, yes, I'm excited to be on holiday and Santa's grotto might be fun. But that doesn't mean I believe in it all because I'm eight years old, nine in January. And at school, I'm in the student parliament, so stop treating me like a baby. I suppose Dad's trying hard, but it's his own fault we're having a terrible time. I mean, a honeymoon is a holiday when two people who got married go off together. They don't usually take their kids. He said we'd have lots of fun if we all came and got to know each other better. Well, we haven't had much fun. And the more I see of Emily and Ethan, the less I want to see of them. Because it's the last day and Santa's grotto is 50 kilometres away, Dad has hired a massive car, which he strokes like it's some kind of huge robot pet. What do you think, Noah? Heated seats, high-definition cameras too, for parking, intelligent driver-assisted technology, plug-in hybrid. Brilliant, isn't it? Great, I say. Emily and Ethan don't say anything. Emily and Ethan are Alice's kids. After the holiday, me and Dad are moving into Alice's house. I'll have to share Ethan's bedroom, which sucks. Ethan's 12 and grunts a lot. And his face is always screwed up like he's on the toilet but can't go. When he does talk... It's usually to say how rubbish everything is. Last week I heard Alice tell Dad that Ethan might not be a teenager yet, but he's practising really hard. Emily is ten and obsessed with aphid attack, a video game where she tries to stop Greenfly destroying a garden. She's got over a million points. Her favourite topics of conversation are aphid attack and Greta Thunberg. She's a vegan and says I'm a murderer because I eat burgers. When she grows up, she wants to work for Greenpeace and force everyone to eat chickpeas. I hate chickpeas. The day after we arrived in Lapland, Dad and Alice got married in a small church. Emily and Ethan were witnesses. Dad said that was so people who were not at the wedding could ask them what really happened, like if you see a crime and have to talk to the police. 
In the photos, Emily and Ethan look like they've been given detention, cleaning out the year one toilets. Dad and Alice look happy, though. I don't dislike Alice. I mean, she's not Mum, but she's all right, I suppose. I just always thought Mum and Dad would get back together. Now I know that's not going to happen, I get sad. And sometimes, when nobody's looking, I cry. But that doesn't mean I'm a baby, because I'm not. According to Mum, it means I'm emotionally intelligent. Alice throws a snowball at Emily and Ethan, who are sat on a bench ignoring everyone. It hits the wall behind them and showers them with snow. Time to go, she shouts. They stand and slouch to the car. I get in the middle of the back seat. I notice Dad watching us, and his grin has disappeared. He looks worried, and I think he must be wondering how we're all going to get on once we're sharing a house. Maybe I should make an effort, for Dad's sake. Mrs Richardson says if you smile at people it makes them happier, and they're more likely to smile back. Ethan climbs in the car and glances down at me. He doesn't smile. Neither do I. So there is some uh, concern in the genius room about smashing childhood illusions in the first line. Don't know how we feel about that. Uh, Johnny, what do you think about that? Uh, yeah, it's a little bit of spoiler alert on the sort of blown yeah. surface cover, perhaps. Uh, but I think that's one of the one of the, the small feelings of it. Uh, you know, one of the very few feelings of it. I, I find this very. Um, on the money for what he, what the author is aiming for here. Um, I think there was an awful lot of very nicely understated humour in it, which is just sort of bubbling under the surface, really wryly put and really well depicted. Um, I also think that the the main protagonist of, of the Noah has got a great voice coming through. Um, you know, you can he, he's captured this eight nine year old very well for me, and I also like the awkwardness and, and the potential strife that he paints from the point of view of you know people from different part different partners getting together who have inherited kids all of a sudden the kids are thrust together as you know siblings and the, the trouble and strife that that creates um really nice nicely done it, it, it to me it works very well i enjoyed it oh terry says uh on youtube he believes in santa by the end but you've oh. still introduced that niggling doubt haven't you yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah, um, 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 aphid attack. Uh, I like that a lot. Uh, there is a voice there. I think was it Ankara? Yes, uh, Ankara says really lovely humour coming through. Uh, Ankara said before that. I let me just put the um, genius room up there. Um, um, uh, <laughs> I like the voice in this. It's engaging. There is a voice there. I would like more of that. I'd like a lot more of that voice. I feel that coming through. Um, Nick. Well, I, I was pretty much on board from the pastiche Conan um, novels, um, oh. which were revealed in, uh, in Terry's bio. Um, I, I, you know, I don't really like the the, the, the title, and I, I don't think that no. commercially the verb didn't work because what was actually so beautiful about this was actually the domestic setup. You know, mm. in those first mm. few um, the first few lines. You know, the, we had a. I actually thought the "Don't Believe in Santa" was a good bang opening. You know, for okay. a book which is obviously going right. to be about Santa. Yeah. Um, uh, and I liked the um, I liked the re the revelation. You know that this was a honeymoon. Um, um, I liked the line about the witnesses and the crime um, uh, for, for for witnessing the, the the marriage. So you know there was some wit going on there. Um, uh, and I, I liked the ending. You know about the smiling. You know no, no smile on his face. No smile on, um, on 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 mine. You know it was a nice sort of rounded introduction. Yeah. I mean, I think that I could have done with a bit more bang on the awfulness yeah. of the, um, perhaps, yeah. of, of, of Emily and, and, and Ethan. I thought that they were nicely yeah. drawn, and you know, but I think that that could be ramped up. Totally. Um, uh, you know, yeah. um, because you need, you know, you really need um to capture the kids' um, attention in middle grade. And I think this yeah. was a long way to, to, to getting there, but just turn the dial up to 11. Um, yep. have a bit more fun with it that's a, that's easy all right terry got it got the instructions turn it up to 11 and, and bang uh, bob's your uncle uh let's now because this is that was the penultimate submission that actually means that terry has surged into the lead of 61 it's not enough though not enough to topple uh matthews uh, very impressive 71 percent last week the first one of the month um 
but still doing well. So now what we're going to do is have our last submission of the day. Fingers crossed. Breath is baited. And this is what it is. It's Dextra Fantasy from Ella. This is Ella's blurb. Hundreds of years ago, our world was linked to an alternate dimension called Estiomir, a place brimming with creatures who had magic written deep in their DNA. Humans and dragons, unicorns, wolves and the like migrated back and forth between the boundaries of both worlds. Yet, when the two dimensions separated and their connection was severed, only the stories stayed. With each generation, their reality faded into fantasy. Until, that is, a dragon and a princess are chosen to travel to Earth. Okay, so familiar ingredients, but maybe an unusual twist there. Let me tell you about Ella. Hello, Ella. Um, Ella says hello. Uh, my name is Ella. I'm 17 year old. Oh, okay, 17. So we do have submissions um, occasionally. I don't think we've had a submission from anyone younger than that. So you're right at the beginning of your writing career. We want to give you the best possible encouragement we can, but we're still going to be straight with you, okay? We're still going to be straight, but um, in a positive way. Um, a student of A-levels, uh, studying physics, chemistry, and of course, English literature, science, to help me understand the world, and English, to help me understand the people living in it. I like that. I've been writing, editing, and constructing my manuscript, Dextra, for a few years now, and my respect for every author, agent, and editor, and individual involved with the publication of any piece of writing has never stopped growing. Thank you. I think that's a compliment. Thank you. On behalf of the entire industry, I accept your award. Um, I hope to be featured on the pop-up submission you are. Um, it looks like an amazing opportunity. It is. And particularly so because today it's going to be read by Kay. Dextra by Ella Miller, read by Lex. I dived, and arrows of air streamed off the bladed edge of each folded wing pressed tightly against my side. The wind split in two, whistling past my ears as my scaled body sliced through it. Hazel's screams had been stolen by the cold currents which rushed past us. Her tight grip on the saddle's reins branded her knuckles bone white as I plunged into another cloud, and for a moment, all I could see was a blank, messy blur. Protective tears pricked the edges of my eyes as the droplets of brewing wane whipped past. Hazel lowered her torso and tucked her chin against her shoulder, also shielding herself against the miniature particles of ice which clawed at her skin and tried to slash at her mahogany eyes. Chaster's patchwork quilt of land suddenly burst into view as the scribble of white vapor phased behind us. Lush grass green, honey golden yellow, and soil brown squares were all stitched together with the shadows of the fences and farmhouses below the layers of lower breezes sending ripples along the fabric of land. I blinked back the tears, staining my vision, and could just about see the cobblestone castle towers in the far distance, and the dark smudge of houses and buildings which surrounded the royal walls of Metador Center, my home. The sky around me was quickly amplified with morning heat. The condensed droplets of moisture skidded off my armored skin, and the ground below had begun to aggressively approach. Timing was crucial here. A second too late and Hazel and I would both find ourselves in the nurse's quarters with dangerous and even lifelong injuries. I waited for a split second longer, falling just a little bit further before I cast my mismatched wings open. The wind caught them, yanking me back, as if the sky had chained me to itself. The invisible shackles sending sharp dabs down my spine and up my weaker blue right wing, a disability that always seemed to hold me back. Ribbons of pain ran along my nerves, and cramp instantly began to corrode at my muscles. Just a little bit more, I grunted, slowing down enough to hit the ground running. I didn't realize how fast I had been going until my paws had made impact with the ground. Even after I had brought myself to a halt, the sensation of movement, the buzzing flood of adrenaline in my veins, refused to fade. The dull ache in my blue right wing also refused to leave, and I could hardly wait until Hazel had untied the strap securing her legs in place before rolling over on my back in an attempt to massage the gnawing cramp away. She kicked off her boots, standing barefoot on the scorched soil. Hazel flung her arms out in a stretch, reaching down past her ankles to rub away the army of pins and needles. Her long chestnut hair was damp from riding in the clouds, and every fiber of her clothing had been soaked through thanks to the rain clouds which had come to end the drought. Hazel raked her fingers through her wet hair, tying it up out of her face in a low ponytail which flooded and curled down her back. Ace, are you okay? 
she asked, touching her thoughts against mine, as she pivoted on her heel to face me, who was still catching my breath. I huffed in a hasty reply, a trail of smoke drifting out of my nostrils. You need to tuck your wings closer to your body so that you decrease your time spent diving, and so that you face less resistance in the sky. It wears you out before your wings are even open. Just as expected, I thought, as she went on ordering out different techniques and instructions for our next practice run. The aroma of decomposing apples engulfed me before I even realized what I was doing. My aura, my own sphere of life energy, had instinctively attached itself onto a tree planted at the edge of an orchard in the field next over. My aura mingled with a younger kind, and I didn't hesitate as I drank up the streams of soft energy that pulsed up through the tree's roots, using the unique ability I had, the ability to steal the energy of others. The strobing shred of pain was quickly numbed to only a dull throb, and on cue, the trunk fainted, tinting the ground with its now-dead weight. The energy which was just flowing through the plant's body was now distributing itself through mine. Uh, right, so deliberate mistake, actually not deliberate at all, complete cock up, very, very sorry about that. It's the first time um, since our new systems have been operational four weeks ago that uh, we had a minor cock up. Um, sorry about that, it's probably human error in any case, probably my mistake. So apologies to Kay and apologies to Lex too, and it was a fantastic reading indeed from Lex. And I think, you, actually Lex, you have some, yeah, Barbara in the um, junior stream was saying, Lex, you really have the voice. Uh, Hannah says, this is beautiful, five for craft from me. Um, Annie, Disabled Dragons, strong prose, great voice, very confident narration, says, says Kate, impressive. And Cora, strong writing, but some, some long sentences I like, with straight into action with interesting characters, definitely read on. RK says, I'd like some narration explaining things, helping ground me, but I love that we're straight in the story. Eva says, writing's good, I have no interest in the story. Fair enough. Nick, how does it make you feel? Um, I had absolutely no expectation of enjoying this one bit from <laughs> the uh, blurb. You know, if I was like, reading Old Dragons and Will and all that, and like, yeah. you know, um, I just thought, oh God, you know, so here we go. Same old, same old, nothing interesting here. I couldn't have been more wrong. Um, Fantastic. I thought this was I thought this was really interesting. Yeah. Um, uh, I liked you know um, uh, I like the fact that we're kind of straight in there, um, uh, and I think that you know it's one of the things that fantasy and science fiction is meant to do. You're not quite meant to keep up you know with it in the first few paragraphs. You just go with the flow, oh, yeah. Yeah, and yeah, then the yeah, world yeah. gradually sort of fills in later. Immersive. Um, uh, yeah, and I yeah. thought there was some nice sort of world aspects here, the sort of life, life force transference thing. Yeah. Um, uh, I thought was uh, was interesting, and so I would read on thinking that I'm going to get you know a really um, a well thought through world. Um, I just feel like and that. I'm yeah. Certainly yeah. Get some, um, I'm certainly going to get some really nice probes. Yeah. So I would definitely go on. Okay, and uh, the icing on, on the cake, of course, is that our. Uh, our author is, is a mere 17 years old, which is, it seems mature yeah. writing, doesn't it, actually? It, it certainly does. And, yeah. and the, thing about, the thing about writing is, is it, it's all about practice. Mm. I mean, all the, you know, the, 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 the you know, authors who have gone on, you know, to become you know, some huge mega bestsellers were all writing, you know, from yeah. the age of sort of 14. And they were writing and writing and writing and writing. And that old sort of 10,000 hours thing, you know, it is yeah. a craft. You own it. Yeah. You have to work at it. Um, yeah. Uh, but Ella's well on the way, I think. Yeah. Very impressive. Yeah, good. Well, that's that's something to remember, Ella. I'm very pleased that uh, Nick's been on the show today. I'm delighted with what he said there. Alex says, I thought there were some interesting concepts here. You very, very rarely see a hero protagonist with a life drain power. Had me wondering how that reflects if I stuck the vitality out of living things aspect. Might backfire later in the narrative. I think that's a good thing from Alex's point of view. Johnny. Yeah, I would have to agree with a lot of what Nick said there as well. <clears throat> it reminded me of something which I read quite well, quite a long time ago. Uh, it was a dragon series, I think it was by Anne McCaffrey, a lady called Anne McCaffrey, and wrote about a, pl a place called Pern, Dragon Riders of Pern, and it immediately took me back to that. Uh, I think her descriptive writing for her age is phenomenal. Uh, mm. She's done a, a really, really great job there. Um, and again, like Nick, I thought more dragons. I mean, we, this is a bit beaten to death, really. But she made it live. She made it, she made it interesting. 
she engaged me with it. Um, I liked also the fact that the dragon is either temporarily injured or has or, or does have some kind of a disability going on as well. My only thing would, would be that I would have thought when the girl and I'm sorry I can't remember the protagonist's name I've forgotten the, the thing but the, the dragon's called this when they were speaking or communicating perhaps the, the telepathic uh, interaction could have been laid out you know yeah. a bit better but but that's that's just being picky I, I think you know that's just a very simple thing um it just um when I, I it took me a while to realize what was happening but yeah i think really good top job well done yeah fantastic that's great all right so we are it's very sadly actually i mean i, I just get into this and i go on all night actually but maybe that maybe i'm just weird like that and apparently there is some sort of game later today that uh, we all have to watch so this is like the the warm-up act for that um this is interesting let's see now what these show leaderboards looking like how about that wow <laughs> well i hope you're happy with that ella you've just just pushed into the lead on on today's show 61 just above uh terry with 60 and then we've got patrick and we've got uh victoria and we've got glennis um this has been quite quite a show quite the show um i think before we end though we have to play the tribute to you ella there you go something for you to take home there i think we're expecting great things from you in the future And we're expecting great things from the next pop-ups and the next one after that. And I want to say thank you so much to everyone who, who took part today. As you know, there is uh, quite a team behind the scenes here. We've got we've got Kate, we've got Rachel, we've got Emily, who's in charge of our amazing team of narrators. Thank you to each and every one of them, because this whole operation would not be possible without your enormous support and talent. And I hope you feel duly thanked and appreciated for that. And of course, right here on air today, we're delighted to have had Johnny, who plays such an important part in the community. And of course, Nicholas Cheatham, CEO of Head of Zeus, who from this month onwards will be receiving every month's winner for their publishing consideration. I've had a great time. Let's do it all again. Same time next week. Take care.